We're going to move to our scripture passage. Uh, today's passage is from Colossians 3, 12 through 14. In the Red Pew Bibles, this is page 984. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. This is the word of the Lord. morning. Let's pray. God, we thank you for these beautiful people, um, chosen people, holy people, people who are beloved of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, Colossians 3, just three verses today. <clears throat> In verses uh, 12 through 14, uh, what we find here is the Apostle Paul pleading with the Colossian church uh, to take a look a, 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 about who they are on the inside. Now, back in verse 9, Paul addresses what things to put off of an old self. And then in verse 10, he talks about putting on this new self, that this new self needs to be consistent with who we are in public as well as who we are in private. And I think that every one of us can relate to this about putting stuff off and putting things on, especially when we're talking about clothing. Uh, when we talk about clothing, you can tell a lot about a person. You can tell what, what culture they're kind of like a, a feeling they're a part of, or you can tell their class, their occupation, their, their health, their fitness, their hobby, their gang, other affiliations, uh, what teams they like, what school they're from. You can tell a lot about a person based off of what they're wearing. Now, not obviously not everything, but you can tell a lot about a person with what they wear and what they don't wear. You can tell a lot about what they value and what they don't. Now, there are some inconsistencies from who we really are and what we wear, because sometimes you know, we wear things that aren't really who we are. Uh, for example, I was at a taco truck last week, and uh, the fellow behind me in line was wearing a Dodgers hat. So I, I just said to him, so your, your team going to make the playoffs? And he said, uh, yeah, yeah, they're going to make the playoffs. The A's have a pretty good team this year. And so I was like, uh, the, the hat, Dodgers. And he was like, oh, no, man, that, that's just, it matches my outfit today. So I was like, oh, okay, I, I get it. I, I get it. Like, the guy looked really sharp. He had blue and gray on. So that's, I'm kind of commemorating him today, um, just to commemorate him. And, and, and so you can tell that uh, what he still valued, though, even though, you know, the the teams didn't match what he really was, but you can tell that he desired to match, and he looked sharp, and he looked clean, and he looked casual, like, and you can tell some things about a person. Now, this baseball cap, taco truck, Dodgers cap, like, that's a very, very trivial thing, but what Paul was writing about here is much more important regarding character and virtue that we put on as we follow Jesus. That what we put on reveals a lot about who we are and who we want to portray ourselves to be. So we, we put on what we want to portray, don't we? Different jobs have different attire. Different occasions call for different attire. And so here is something we put on as Christians that has to be proactively put on. And there are things to proactively put off. And it takes effort to do this. It doesn't just happen. The clothes that you wore today didn't just happen to be on uh, most of you, I think. Yes. That you had some PJs and you put those off and you put something on to, to come here. It, it doesn't just happen. So what good character are we putting on and what bad character are we putting off? So that we are consistent with whom we claim to be if we claim to be Christians, that it's consistent. But, but the identity on the outside, if it's contrary to who we are on the inside, then there's, there's an issue there. 
we've put on these new selves spiritually. What does this look like? Well, symbolically, we, we see this in the sacrament of baptism. We had this just a few weeks ago here, right? Where, where the old self is buried and then the, the new self is arisen, this new person, this new life, this new self who identifies with Jesus, that this external, this public uh, act is symbolic of what has happened internally, of what has happened privately within one's reality. So here we have verse 12, and Paul writes, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. So who puts these clothes on? And Paul's writing, chosen ones do. God's chosen ones. Now since Adam and Eve, people have tried to hide from God. God, our creator, we, his created, and as his creation, we've tried to hide from God for a very long time. And it's really mysterious how the old person becomes a new person. It's mysterious how the Spirit convicts people of their sin, this separation that sin has caused from God, uh, that, that the, the separation caused by sin from God. And it's mysterious how Jesus is revealed to people so that they have faith in him. But we do know that God is entirely responsible for initiating reconciliation with us, that he's the one that did that. Now, it's our prayer and desire for those who aren't reconciled to God to be reconciled to God, to experience this new life in Christ. And so these clothes are for God's chosen people. It's for the holy. It's for the beloved. Now, we've talked about what holy means, but as a refresher, the, the opposite of holy, the antonym of holy is common. So those are opposite words. So I'll, let me attempt to paint a picture for you. In, in the southern Chinese culture, uh, which I'm part of, um, soup is really, really important to the culture. Soup is um, part of a meal. It's a nutritious, healthy part of a meal. And so my maternal grandfather uh, did this quite often where he'd make some nutritious type of soup and then he'd invite all of the, my aunts and uncles and cousins, everybody would gather around. So this huge gathering of people, it was humongous because he'd invite all his friends. And so it's like hundreds of people, literally, that are partaking in these huge vats of soup that my grandfather used to make. My grandfather was in the restaurant business, so he had these huge pots that can fit people inside of them. <laughs> like they, they, they're huge. And so... He only used these pots for soup, though. These were his, like, sacred, holy pots. They'd be on the stove all day long, boiling there, and, like, nobody touch Grandpa's soup. You don't add anything to it. You don't do any of that stuff. You don't ratatouille it. You don't do any of that stuff. Like, you leave Grandpa's soup alone. It's a big occasion. He put a bunch of expensive stuff in it. You don't mess with it. And it happened at least monthly where my mom would get a call from my grandfather and, and so we'd have to make this trek from Los Angeles to Tijuana, Mexico, uh, where he lived. And so we'd have to make this trek. So at least once a month we'd have to make this trek for soup. And I was just like, just for soup? Like, we just drink the soup? And sometimes it was awful because it was like herbal medicinal stuff. And it's just like, but I, we had to drink it because we'd get in trouble if you don't drink it. Like, you'd get in trouble. <laughs> But this, these pots were set apart from other pots. Like he had so many pots. But these huge, gigantic soup pots, they weren't used to bathe us, one of us 17 grandchildren. He, even though it could fit like multiple of us in, in these soup pots. We weren't allowed to use these pots as musical instruments. Uh, we weren't allowed to do anything. These pots were special, just for soup. Nothing else was cooked in them, just for soup. And this also included menudo, which he made the best. I can't find it anywhere else, but he made the best. But it was set apart for a purposeful, distinct purpose. It wasn't common like these other pots were used. His other pots, there were other things in them. Like I would see beans in them. I would see rice in them. I would see mangoes in them. I would see whatever, or, or different storage things. I would see stuff in them. Those pots were holy. 
just soup. We are called from the common. We were set apart for God's purpose, for God's work. You're set apart for that. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So as God's chosen, we are not common. God has a purpose for you. And our value is not based off of the values of the world. What we do is distinct from the world because we are holy. Our aim is not to measure up against the metrics of the world. We don't strive to be identical to the world because we're not called to be common. We're holy. And so you see some of the problems that some Christians have or some churches or some even like Christian artists trying to measure up to a certain thing and Christians are always behind measuring up to artists in various ways, like music and acting and all these kind of things, right? They're usually kind of behind. But we're not supposed to be measuring up to those things. We're, we're set apart. Now, people may dislike our purpose or our message or whatever we stand for. They may even hate it. But dirty laundry does not go into the soup pot. That soup pot is for nutritious, nourishing soup to be made in. And as God's chosen ones, you are not common. You're holy. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy." God has purposed us to bring his message of hope, love, peace, reconciliation to the world. We are God's chosen. We are holy. We are beloved. Beloved, we're deeply loved by God. Paul reminds the Colossians that they were the object of God's love just as you are the object of God's love today. And so remember this, you, you are God's beloved that no matter where you find yourself today, you can rest assured that God loves you very deeply. Now what Paul wrote to the church in Colossae is actually quite mind-blowing because you have to consider who Paul was. Paul used to think that only Jews were God's chosen ones, that only Jews were the ones who were set apart that were holy, that weren't common, because Gentiles are common. Paul used to think as a Jew that only Jews were God's beloved. Everyone else was just a Gentile. But now he's come to this place where he's telling, obviously there were some Jewish believers who became Christians in Colossae, but there are some Gentiles there. And he is telling them, it's not like this anymore. And so his message changed from being this very zealous Jew to including all who believe in Jesus Christ. And so this is a testament to God's transformational power in the lives of people because Paul was the guy who endorsed the death of Stephen, the stoning of Stephen. Paul was the one who was for jailing believers and throwing them and dividing families and persecuting the church and making life horrible for them. He was this guy. And now he's saying, you know what? All of you in Jesus, including Gentiles, we're chosen. We're holy. We're beloved. And know this. This is who we are in Jesus Christ. This is, this is when, when we know who we are in Christ, then you can actually be assured and rest assured about the rest of verse 12, about the, the types of things to put on. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. And when we put on these new clothes, then we can accomplish verse 13, which is forgiveness. We can do that. Now, until we know who we are, chosen, holy, beloved, then those attempts on putting on those clothes, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, that's just not going to be complete. We need to be really secure in who we are so that wearing those clothes feels right. It feels appropriate. It has a good fit. 
It runs consistent with who we are in private and in public. And we must know what God has done in order to know that we are chosen, that we are holy, that we are beloved. And if these things aren't known, then we won't have that second part of that verse of putting those clothes on. Again, we have to choose to put these things on. It takes work to dress this part. And if we're ever in doubt as to what this looks like, we, all, all we have to do is look at the characteristics found in Jesus. Because essentially, this is what this is. It's a call to be more like Jesus. Let, let's look over these characteristics briefly of what to put on. Compassionate hearts. This is that emotional, gut-level compassion that, that we have towards people. It's not just something that we think about and it's just kind of stuck in our heads. This is something that we feel. This is something that emotes out of us. It's, it's the bowels in which our compassion rests. And we need to be tender-hearted people who are, are stirred when things aren't right. To have compassionate hearts move us into action towards those things that we see aren't right. Compassion is what moved the Samaritan to care for the man who was left for dead beside the road. That, that story is found in Luke chapter 10. Compassion is what moved the prodigal son's father to run to him and to receive him into his throne in Luke chapter 5. I, I'd like to point one thing out from these stories that I, I just find really, really fascinating. Luke chapter 10, verse 33 is where the Samaritan story is found, and, and, as, and it reads this. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Luke 15, verse 20 is the story about the prodigal son. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Now you notice in both of these stories that the father and the Samaritan, they, they saw the people who needed compassion. So do we see people? Do we see them? Because we can't have compassion on people if we don't see them. Now, I know that we see a lot of things that we just walk by. So this is more than just being able to see something and then ignore it. This is touching that center of compassion where when you see them, it affects you. It affects your feelings that when you walk by the person who has no food or has no clothing, that it's not just another person you just walk by. That something is stirring inside. See, we have to see beyond the optics of a person. Because so often, I think this happens a lot even in the world, which we aren't to measure ourselves by. But we see just surface level. So we see race. And we see class. We see age. You see what you see. But this is deeper than that. Because are we able to see the prodigal son for who he is? Are we able to see the, the guy laying on the road for who he is? Because if you're seeing like that father saw his prodigal son, you're not seeing this young man who is a Palestinian and who's coming back broke. You're not seeing that. The father's not seeing that. What is this father seeing? He's seeing a person who has betrayed him who has disrespected him, who has stolen from him. So we see deeper than that. The Samaritan sees not just a beat-up guy on the street who's whatever. What does he see? He sees a hurt person left for dead who's completely different than who he is who's very inconvenient at this time because he's traveling at night and who has to sacrifice and use his own donkey to put this guy in and pay for his time in the hotel, not knowing if this guy's ever going to be able to pay him back. Of course, race, class, age, they can all be part of it, but it's deeper than that. It's deeper than that. Kindness. Kindness is this goodness of heart that's within us. It's, it's something we definitely need the Spirit for. It's beyond just doing good. 
It's beyond just doing good out of your sheer will. Because you can do that and have kind of a manipulative heart or you're, you're doing it for some other reason. But this is something that's revealing who we really, really are. Those, those characters found in verse 8 that we're to put off, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, lying, those come from within our heart as well. And we need to put those off. But what do we need to put on? And this is one of those things we need to put on, kindness. Take a look at Barnabas. Barnabas took Paul in. The story's in Acts chapter 9 through 11. So Paul becomes a Christian, right, on the road to Damascus. He's actually on the road to Damascus to persecute Christians. And he wants to jail them. He wants to make them suffer for believing that Jesus Christ is a Messiah. He's a false Messiah, and I have to prove this. And so Paul gets encountered with Jesus. He gets blind. The scales fall off of his eyes. He receives Jesus. What does he do? In Damascus, he starts teaching about Jesus, and he's starting to confound all the Jews about who he is now, that he's telling the story, proving to them that Jesus is the Christ, when before he's proving to everyone Jesus is not the Christ. Now what the heck's going on? This guy used to be this, and now he's this. And so they plot to kill Paul. The Jews plot to kill Paul, and so what they do is the disciples of Jesus help Paul escape. Right? They, they lower him in a basket, they, they help him escape Damascus, and then he heads back to Jerusalem. So he's going to Jerusalem, and the Jerusalem Christians are deathly afraid of Paul because it wasn't that long ago that he gave the thumbs up on killing Stephen. And so here he is, and so they don't know, is it true, or is this kind of some attempt for him to be like a spy, and then he's going to catch all of us? Like, what is this? They don't trust him at all. And what happens? Barnabas steps up. And Barnabas takes Paul in, receives Paul, vouches for Paul. And then in 11, verse 24 of Acts, Luke records this for us, that Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. That this is how he extended kindness to Paul. He had to be full of spirit. He had to have this faith. Another thing for us to put on, humility. Humility is coming to terms with who we really are before God. So you take a look at what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 6. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? God does. What do you have that you did not receive? Nothing. If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Because essentially God gave us gifts not for us to boast about it, but to use it for God's glory and for the benefit of others to bless others. And so the Corinthian church was divided. And so Paul addresses these things back in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul wrote this letter to benefit the Corinthian church. And what he taught also applied to himself. That we didn't come into this world with anything. We didn't bring anything with us. Who gave it to us? God gave it to us. There's not, there's this idea that if, that if we did it, then we did it. We did it by our own bootstraps. We pulled ourselves up. It's no. The giver gave that to you. And if you don't recognize that, that is pride. Not recognizing God when we tell people who we are and what, what we can do is pride. Sometimes we, we just talk a lot and we don't do enough. And we're busy telling people what to do or what we stand for or, or what we're about when there's like so much to do. Jeremiah chapter 9, starting in verse 23. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. See, the Lord practices these things. He, does, he doesn't just think about steadfast love and justice and righteousness. He does these things. And if we are like him, we imitate him and we understand and know he delights in these things and we do likewise. Now, one of the dangers in practicing these things without a mindfulness of 
God and who we are in the eyes of God is that we lose this reverent, respectful understanding and knowledge of God that can then easily move us into pride. Because then we, we start doing things out of ourselves. That it's not motivated by the things of God that some may start boasting in the works of love, in the works of justice, in the works of righteousness. And that's something we have to be really careful about. Let him who boasts boast in this that he understands and knows me. Not about the works. Not about those things. That if we truly understand and know God, we will practice steadfast love, justice, righteousness. But we will do so in humility. Meekness. This is a synonym for gentleness. This doesn't mean that you're a doormat and that you don't have a spine and people can just walk all over you and you can't say no and that you don't have any boundaries. This is just a person who's really good at self-control because they know that their life is totally submitted to God, that they're controlled by God. It doesn't mean that this person can't be expressive. It's that the expression is appropriate for the occasion. So if that person is angry, it's not that a meek person can't be angry. Because what was Jesus in the temple when they were money changers in there and he was flipping tables and he was making a, a whip and getting all the animals out? A meek person can be angry at times, but it's appropriate. It is right to be angry in the face of injustice. It is right. But then there are some people who are just like angry bird. Like they're just always angry. Like, there's no matter what, they're just an angry person and, and you don't want to be around them because they just have this aura of anger and it's no matter what you're doing, it's like they're angry about it. But the meek person is angry at the right times. They're not angry at the right times but then also angry at the wrong times. They're just angry at the right times. And meekness treats people with gentleness when it's appropriate. Even when needing to be firm, they can be firm too. And so you can see that these qualities, these clothes, they play with one another. They have an interplay with one another. So kind of like matching your Dodger cap with a gray and blue and black pants or whatever. They, they flow. So out of com a compassionate heart comes this meekness. Out of humility will someone be able to look at oneself before God and from that will flow meekness. You know, things get done. It's not that the meek person is passive, but when things get done, they're done in gentleness. Patience. Man, this is one that all of us can use, isn't it? This is... Here's something that's magical about patience. Patience allows us to hope. Because you're going to endure a little longer. You're going to be in it a little longer. And let the hope be there. That when we experience that despair or that cowardice, that we don't succumb to it, that we don't just give up, that we sit with it a little bit longer, we endure with it a little bit longer, even through that dark time and exercising that patience, exercising that ability to have hope, to have faith. Now, verse 13 is where it actually gets a little tough, actually a lot tough. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, Forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Now this phrase, bearing with one another, really bugs me. Because this means that there are people, and will be people, in our life who are unbearable. That's what that phrase means, doesn't it? So... If I have to bear with someone, that means that there will be someone or there is someone in my life who is unbearable. That's messed up. Like, God, why would you do this? Why would you put unbearable people in my life? But the thing is, is that God has laid out this plan on how to live out verse 13. And it goes back to verse 8 that you put off your old self. In order to move into verse 13, you got to put off anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another 
So you put all that stuff off, and then you put this new stuff on. You put this stuff on, but before you even put any of it on, you have to know something. You're God's chosen one. You are holy. You are beloved. Now that you know this, put this stuff on. And you put this stuff on. You put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. That's your new wardrobe. And you're always changing clothes. Because somehow anger showed up. Somehow malice showed up. Somehow slander showed up. Somehow lying showed up. And you've got to take it off. And then you've got to put back on that kindness. Because you're a chosen one. You're holy. You're beloved. Put the new stuff on. Take the old stuff off. And it's a constant wardrobe change. We've got to keep on doing this. But you're able to. You're able to do verse 13. You're able to forgive. And so that when that person attacks you, or when they lie about you, or they gossip about you, or that they slander you, or do anything else that is really, really awful, you can, because of kindness, control. You can hold yourself back from revenge. You can resist the urge to retaliate. You can hold back the things that you really want to say, that you really want to do, to unbearable people. And they're out there, aren't they? Some of them might be living with you. Here's the funny thing about unbearable people. They don't know that they're unbearable. Unbearable people don't know this. They have, they're clueless. But, but we are able to do this because we're able to live out verse 12 and then you can do verse 13. So, it's not just bearing with one another, which means there are unbearable people. It's also forgiving each other, which means there are unforgivable people. And to make it worse, Paul throws in this condition. The Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. That pretty much covers everything, right? Like, there's nothing left off of this. Forgiving each other. We know that Everything is not fine in the world. There are some really bad things happening. And this forgiving each other thing is actually quite a liberating thing. Think about this. It is allowing the obvious things in life to be addressed. As opposed to just sweeping them up under the rug or just brushing them off and pretending that they never happened. It is calling things out that everything's not fine. you got to deal with stuff that we need to forgive one another to make things right and not pretend that everything's fine, everything's well, and that we don't live in this messed up world because let's face it, all of us have fecal matter that we have to deal with. Right? Fecal matter happens. And so we just need to stop complaining and, and work towards forgiving each other. And if we don't exercise forgiveness, we fail to recognize the forgiveness of God for us. And so what that means is we're actually belittling. We're brushing off, we're shrugging off our offenses to God that he has forgiven us of. And we are also exaggerating and playing up all the offenses that have happened to us, thinking that those were much worse than what we've ever done to God. But if we see who we really are in light, in the light of God, in light of who we are, the chosen ones, holy, beloved... We've been forgiven a lot because of those things, because of his love for us, because we were set aside holy, because he's chosen us. And be, that makes 13 possible because of verse 12. Verse 12 is what makes 13 possible. So how are verses 12 and 13, how are they held together? Verse 14 tells us it's love. And above all these, put on love. Put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. I, I kind of liken it to that last piece of clothing you put on before you go out, which is typically your jacket or your shoes, right? But it makes an outfit, right? Because if, if you're wearing like a tux and then you put your flip-flops on, it's kind of like, hey, 
come on, man. Like, that doesn't work. Or if you're wearing, if you're like in your board shorts and you're getting ready to surf and then the last piece you put on is like a trench coat, uh, people are going to be calling the cops on you. Like, that's, that's, <laughs> that's not going to work. That love is that last piece that just kind of ties everything together and you're like, that guy looks sharp. That, she, has, she has a beautiful ensemble. Look at that. That's that last piece that just makes everything and it ties everything together. That love holds it all together. And it's not a love that is done just in isolation because then you got police calling on you because you don't look right. But it's to be practiced amongst like all these things. And it's to be practiced amongst uh, community, amongst a fellowship of people. That the, the love is to be put on not just for yourself, just to be able to look in the mirror and say like, oh yeah, you look good. But it's for everybody. It's, it's, it's this thoughtful, purposeful garment to be put on the new self. You know, there's so much division in this world. There's so much disunity in our world. There, you and I know there are a ton of unbearable people here. I, I'm not, not the church. I'm just like here. Just like here. There are a lot of unforgivable people. You know, you just read stuff that happens on the news and you're just like, what? How is that even possible? But here's the thing. Think about Jesus, that he dealt with all of this. Jesus grew up, was born into a very, very oppressive regime, uh, the Roman Empire. So as a Palestinian Jew, definitely facing racism, definitely facing classism, definitely facing prejudice, because here he is, this insignificant Jew in the Roman Empire, and the Roman Empire just thinks that these people are a bother. We just have to keep them quiet, everyone. Let them have their festivals, let them have their temples, let them have their celebrations just so that we don't have to bother with them. But just keep them quiet. This race was historically a slave race. Right? All the way back from Egypt, and you can go back to the Assyrians and, and Babylonians and Babylonian captivity. You can trace them all back. It's essentially a slave race of people. To make matters worse, look at his family and where he was born and who he was born to. So he's born into this hugely dysfunctional family. Dad disappears doesn't really say what happens, but he's gone at a very early age because he doesn't really grow up with Jesus. So it could be death, it could be whatever, but he's not around. He grows up in a single family home, single, single parent home. The mom who he does grow up with is, has a really bad reputation. People are saying like, uh, who's your dad? Nobody really knows because uh, who, who's your mom sleeping with? So who knows who your dad is? So she has this stigma that's carried with her throughout her life, and then he has these siblings that don't even recognize him as who he says he is. Um, they don't even receive him until he's dead. And then they're like, oh, wait a minute, maybe that's all true. But until that time, can you imagine everything he was going through? Saying like, you're nuts, man. Would you stop getting straight A's? Mom's getting on my case. Like, you know, you're just perfect. Why don't you lie? Why don't you do anything? You're just making life really hard on us. And they're all kind of like, and then Jesus does this to himself. This is really weird. When he goes out and he picks his team, he doesn't pick normal dudes. He doesn't pick people that can actually help him. He picks a misfit of people. So when he picks people, he picks people on opposite sides of the spectrum. He says, uh, hey, zealot, meet tax collector. I don't know if you get the context about this, but zealots were out there killing people like tax collectors because they felt tax collectors were part of this Roman Empire system, and so they were wanting to kill these guys. And yet Jesus is saying, essentially in our terms, in gang terms, like, hey, you blood, come here, you crypt, come here, and we're going to go out together and change the world. And he's doing this, and he's recruiting people who are really violent, Right? Sons of thunder who just want to kill people. You don't accept Jesus? Jesus, let's throw down fire. All right, you violent ones, I'm going to bring you on my team too. And then, oh, you other violent one who likes to cut people's ears off in the dark, I'm going to bring you on too. Like he's, he's bringing these 
crazy people on board. He's doing this to himself. So he's born into this society. He's raised dealing with racism and classism and all these sorts of things. And then he invites all of this stuff into himself. Dysfunctional family and then all these crazy guys that he's having to deal with all the time. But here's the beautiful thing. He's showing us how to put off the old self and put on the new self. He did it. Right? He, he puts off all those things that he could be doing. The slander, the malice. And he, he would probably rightfully be able, okay to do that because come on, man, these guys are nuts. But he puts all those things off and then he puts on the kindness, the meekness, the humility, the compassionate heart, love, which binded all that together in perfect harmony. He puts all that on and he shows that. You received this card. Um, if you don't have one, just put your hand up and we can get one to you. But you received this card here. And essentially, these kind of four steps are um, what happened. Billy. <laughs> I can't um, fault them because I'm going to put on patience. Um, <laughs> Just kidding. The first service, I was so late because I was trying to get something to print and then um, they're just getting me back. But here's essentially what we talked about in our three verses today, right? We're, we're God's chosen ones. We're holy. We're beloved. And before we go any further, you, you kind of have to recognize that. So if any of you don't have Jesus in your life or you don't recognize that, that that's the first step before you can do anything else. So if you want to accept Christ into your life, do that this morning, knowing you're a chosen one. You're holy. You're set apart for a purpose. You are loved deeply by God. Then you'll be able to put off your old self, found in verse 8. And then you'll be able to put on this new self, found in verse 12. You can then start putting on the compassionate hearts, the kindness, the humility, the meekness, the patience. And then you're going to start changing wardrobes constantly. Because you're going to be faced with unbearable people. You're going to be faced with unforgivable people. And that anger jacket is going to, you're just going to find yourself in that anger jacket. And you're going to have to put it off. And then you're going to have to put a different one on. But to bear with one another and to forgive each other is made possible because you know who you are, chosen, holy, beloved, and you're putting on, actively putting on these new clothes. Now, that fourth line there, probably the toughest thing. Because maybe someone here is really struggling with forgiving somebody who is unbearable and has done an unforgivable thing. But here's the thing. That person who is occupying your mind and your heart and your thoughts is occupying all that space in you rent-free. They're not paying you for taking up all this space. What do you do with people that don't pay rent, that owe you rent? You kick them out. You evict them. So this is your chance. This is your eviction notice. Just put it down there and pray. And we, we'll, we'll join you in prayer if you need help with that. But it's time to like remove them. It's time to be set free from them occupying all the space in you. So in the next several minutes, we're going to give you an opportunity to pray through that and pray for that person and this may be a hard thing too like I'm not going to pray for that person ask God about it first and just see what the spirit does in your heart see what the spirit does in your mind and as you're working on that um, if you need help with that I'll be sitting in that front pew over here and Billy's over here and in the left front pew um, 
We'll pray with you. We'd be honored to pray with you. So let's take a moment to do that.
as Nate and uh, Andrew and Christina continue to lead us in worship, um, we want to open this time up for communion, and hopefully this is a, a more rich time of communion as well, having a, a person that you need to extend forgiveness to right in front of your face with their name, that this is a symbolic sacrament of God's sacrifice to us, a cracker symbolizing Christ's body broken for us, the grape juice there symbolizing Christ's blood shed for us. And as we take these communion elements, we're remembering the forgiveness extended to us, that if it is extended to us, that we also in turn need to forgive others. So we invite you. Now, I realize that some of you may have a lot of work to do because the wounds are so deep. And reconciliation is a, a two-way street, but in terms of a forgiveness coming from you as an individual, that if your heart is postured in that direction and you want to face that direction and you want to move in that direction, we invite you to participate in taking communion. That you're, in a, you're facing God, like there's nowhere better to face. That you're postured towards God, there's nowhere better. So that he's going to draw you in and he's going to do a miraculous thing in your life. So we welcome you to do that. And so please feel free to come take communion. And if anyone needs prayer, we're still available for that too.